God, we love you, and I, uh, I thank you for a time to gather in your name. I thank you for a time to gather under your truth. I thank you that you welcome us in just as we are. I thank you that there is no prerequisite to come to you of getting something in order because it is you who gets our life in order. It is you who, who redeems and restores and makes us new and, and makes us right as you have created us to be God. And, Lord, um, and so we just are thankful for that. We pray for every person in this room, including myself today, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be open and transformed and conformed to, to, to your heart, to your will, to your way, to, you, to what you see and say that is good. Lord, we thank you that you created us out of love for your glory, God, for your purpose, and Lord, that you are working to restore us as we have fallen in Jesus, Lord, that you're working to restore us in Christ. And so, Lord, we give you this time. Speak to us now. Lord, come in power. Lord, speak through my words or in spite of my words, whatever it takes. Lord, let your Holy Spirit catch fire and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I said we're jumping in. I am not kidding. So Romans 7 the first part of verse 7, it says this. It says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So that's where we're at. And if you've been with us, if you've been in Romans with us for a while, you're kind of, this is a rhythm that Paul does. So once, and he kind of sets up his sections with these questions, and he's working through this kind of as a lawyer would, thinking of kind of like case, you know, principle, you know, and all this stuff, and he's, and he's just dissecting, he's just breaking it down one after another, knowing kind of what the responses are going to be in, in the audience of who he's writing to. So once again, he says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. So it's another clarifying moment. Paul is anticipating something. What's he anticipating? And so to, to catch on to that real quick, we want to look at what Matt taught us through last week in the first six verses of Romans 7. So, so, so Paul, last week in this section that Matt taught, he, he left us uh, with this main takeaway that, that Matt called us to. And it was instead of freedom through the law, it is freedom from the law in Christ that we are liberated and find joy and obedience. So it's as to say, true freedom is found outside the law, and staying under the law brought the fruit of death. And if you remember the audience, he's writing to a church in Rome that's kind of mixed with, with Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians, which Gentiles, everything but the Jews, and they're kind of arguing over what's important and what they should hold to and what of the old way of life that the, 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 the law of Israel brought in, should, should they still be pursuing and where are they free? So this is kind of the context. And so you got to think about, like, you know, last week, you know, Matt reminded us of, of, of that it's not just for the Jew. This is actually good news for the Gentile as well because it speaks their freedom as well. But he's, so he's, he's addressing last week, he said, it is not through the law that we find freedom, but through Christ. And actually to pursue freedom through the law is to actually only find death. So if you want to kind of summarize that in something familiar, maybe it is a freedom from legalism. Maybe we can look at it that way. So freedom from just finding, finding redemption, finding right standing, finding your righteousness through your ability to attain to, to the moral behavioral laws of, of the scriptures. So how do we get there? If we want to look at the summary uh, verses from last week, verses five and six, it says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, so Paul, thinking about what the responses are going to be, wanting to make sure that they know, I'm not saying the law is bad. He comes to this statement of like, okay, so is the law bad? Is it sin? And once again, a very emphatic, as he has done every time, no way. So that's where we're at. So as much as last week led us to the reality that, that it's, it's not by keeping the law that we find freedom, legalism, today we will still see, we'll see that as well without the law, without the law, we will also find death. So hear that again. If we seek to find freedom through the law, we find death. But yet if we seek to find freedom without the law, we find death. You're like, wait, what does that mean? So today, Paul is addressing the heart and life of the person that has not encountered the redeeming, renewing, regenerating, saving work of Christ. The person that is still left to their own means, to their own efforts, which again would have been a person of Israel at the time, a Jew at the time, because they were left to their works. And so it's the, it's the unsaved person, really. It's the person before meeting Jesus that Paul is addressing here. So picking back up in Romans 7, going through Romans 7 and 8, it says this. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And if you're thinking, well, if Paul is trying to show that the law is not all bad, he's not really doing a good job. It sounds still pretty bad. So this is the this is the first this first statement here that we saw there in, in that part of verse seven is so important for today. And so that that statement that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This really sets us up for this entire section, and we need to get what's being said here if we want to go through this well and walk out with the right understanding. So for us to correctly understand today, today's text, we must understand that one of the main purposes of the law is to reveal to us the character of sin. One of the main purposes of the law is to reveal to us the character of sin, and more specifically, our sin. More specifically, to reveal the character of our sin. And we don't like this. This, is, this, is, this week has been a slow burn for me in this text. Like, we don't, because it's like prickly things of like, we're talking about like our sin and like that we're sinners. And like, that's just such, it feels like such an archaic term. And we're using words like perversion in, the, in our perverted hearts today. So just to warn you. And like, our tendency is to check out and think this is like, this is, this is not today's Christianity. That's old school. That's when they beat you over the head with the Bible. That's when it was like a bunch of judgmental Christians. We're, we, are, we are now more refined and redeemed than that. We get grace more. So this, this doesn't feel like it belongs today, but, but it does. It's here, and the God's Word is still living and active, and it's still all of His counsel that we need today. So let's dig in well. Let's be patient. Let's be humble. And let's see how this is actually a gift. And I have to warn you. This is really difficult because we're reading through a letter that's meant to be read in one sitting. And, and I feel bad for Caleb. Caleb's teaching next week. And, and, like, and we don't get to get to the payoff that comes in Romans 8. We don't, I mean, and we're trying to be patient and teaching what is here because there's a reason that Paul laid out his thoughts the way that he did. He wants us to really get what he's teaching us. He wants us to, he's trying to deconstruct so he can rebuild a right and healthy understanding. So this is difficult. Because we want to get to the payoff. And there's payoff today, I promise there is. But, the, but just 
if we can like today, next week, and then the week after we get to Romans 8, like just know there's a trajectory to this, and, and, uh, and we're going to get to that, but it's, it's difficult because we have to really sit into like the, the character of sin, our sin, owning it, and, and we don't like that, and, and, and so anyway, I, I just wanted to bring you into my, my, my slow burn this week of just wrestling with this, delighting in it, and not liking it all at the same time, so <coughs> excuse me, so it's an interesting day, an interesting week, and it's a wonderful text, but that's where we're at. So to get back where I was, to say, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, is to say one of the main purposes of the law is to reveal to us the character of sin, and specifically our sin. So how, how, how does the law reveal the character of sin? So here you go. First off, if we look at the last part of verse 7, he says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. So first, the law defines sin for us. Paul's saying that I would not have known the very concept of envy or, or, or coveting that, that it was sin without the law, because it is the law that outlined why this is against God's command, and just very much states it that it's against his command. He says, do not covet. He's speaking of the 10th commandment, by the way, you shall not covet. So without the standard of the law, Paul and us, we, would not understand it to be sin. But we talked about like how we live, like kind of talking about longing for the freedom of conscience before we came to the realization of the law and sin, and like how, you know, but yet, what, did, what good did that freedom do if you were still heading towards destruction? So it's that same kind of thought continued here, that without the law, we wouldn't know that there was sin. So we see, and we'll unpack that more in a minute, the law defines sin for us. Uh, in verse 8, it says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So we also see that the law reveals sin in us. <coughs> Excuse me, it's going to be a difficult one today. So the law defines sin for us. The law also reveals sin in us. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So last week, Matt described um, this very, he, he described this when he was telling us about him trying to keep Everett from touching the light, you know, the, the power outlet. And it was, it was the moment, and, and I've seen this in my kids, and I decided to use an illustration of other kids besides my own this time, um, you know, but it's the very thing that when Matt said, Everett, do not touch, that Everett just wants to go and touch it even more. And the more Matt says, do not touch, the more Everett wants to touch it. And we see that, so, so, <coughs> excuse me, so we see this, this work of the law exposing sin in us. The fact that when as soon as the command comes, the sin rises up. And again, we're going to unpack all this a lot more in just a minute. Paul is saying that when the commandment of God comes, it stirs up or aggravates the sin that is already in our hearts. It's the question of, are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Right? And you know, again, like we're saying sin and sinner a lot this week, so I know it's a stretch, but let's just sit in it and see what the Lord does. So thus, the law not only defines sin for us, but it also reveals how sin resides in us. So Paul reiterates this in verse 13. He says, It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin 
and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. <coughs> Sorry. Paul is describing something we all know, we all know too well. We experience the way our hearts respond just like Everett's to God's commands. And that, and that the more we try in our effort not to envy or covet or any other command that expresses God's good truth and will and way for our life, the more we try not to in our effort, the more we seem to just strive and drive for that very thing. So we see that tendency. We all know it too well. <coughs> so here we see the purpose of the law. What is it? We saw those two things, but we see the law cannot save us. And here's, here's some good news. The law cannot save us. It was never meant to. This is what Paul's calling us to. The law was never meant to save us. The law is meant to and must show us that we need to be saved. When God gives us, when God, a holy God who created us in his glory out of love for his holy purpose and knowing that we sinned against him and fell, when he gives us his commands, again, because of grace, what we've been unpacking this whole time is not so that we can earn our way back into good graces. It is so that we can, as we pursue that and see our inability to actually, to actually achieve it, we see that, oh gosh, this is beyond my means. It is beyond my effort. It is beyond my power, beyond my ability, and I need a Savior. That's what the law is meant to do. At what point, to think about, like, it's meant to reveal you need to be saved, <coughs> at what point do you call out, save me? I mean, like, you know, if you fall in the water, you thrash for a moment. And then the realization hits you, I can't swim. And you say, save me. And you reach out. And you're wanting that life preserver. You're wanting someone to come in and rescue you. You call out for salvation when you see no other means of your own. You don't need to be saved if you have a way to overcome your situation. That's what Paul's calling us to, and that's what the law is meant to help us see. So the law shows us that we need to be saved because it shows us that we're all sinners and we can't overcome it on our own. The law convicts us of our sin. What a joy. We'll see later in Romans, it says it is that's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is this kindness. That's what we're seeing here. So the law convicts us so that we would come to the point of repenting. It convicts us of our sins before we actually see our need for or even have the desire for the grace of God in Christ, a Savior. Anybody want to come finish this? I have notes. Um, I'll get you close. So the, the law reveals the nature of our sin. It's the nature of our sin. It, the, the, the effect, it's, it's, its ways, the way that it operates. So how does sin use the law? Because that's what we're seeing here. How does sin use the law? The law does much more than just, than just showing us our sin, like, like looking at a display window <coughs> of your favorite clothing store. You know, you can look in the window and see, oh, that's, okay, that's, that's sin. It's much more than that. The law puts the clothes on you, and, and you wear them, and it becomes, and you, you see yourself in them, and now you're looking, the law helps you look in the mirror and see 
See the impact of sin. See that it is the sin that dwells with the, the sin of, 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 of the, the, the nature of our sin that pulls us to, to rebel against the law of God. So the law actually aggravates, like I said, and provokes sin in us. And it, and it helps us see it as ours. So Romans 7, 8, and 9 says, But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And again, reading it like that, you're like, gosh, so I still feel like he's saying the law is bad. Like, isn't it the law that brings death? So let's unpack this a little bit more. How does the law do this? The law, it intersects with our unregenerate hearts, our hearts that have not been made new, have not been taken from stone and turned to flesh by the work of Christ. It takes and it intersects those hearts and the, the perversity of our hearts. And again, this is where you're like, this is like Bible beating. I don't, you know, maybe I'm overstepping and like projecting things on you that I'm just so I can feel better. But this is what I went through every, and this is what I go through. Like, and it's just my own need to like face this and I'm grateful for it. But but like I don't I don't like this this statement that like well it's just calling out my it's just pointing out and it's intersecting with the own perversity of my heart but that's what's happening here that's what Paul is saying so what do I mean by that well perversity is a prickly word <coughs> we're like again it doesn't feel like it belongs anymore but to pervert, to pervert something is to take something and use it for the wrong reasons for our own satisfaction. That's what it is to pervert something. This is the tendency of all of our hearts, and we see it played out in that all of our hearts will take any opportunity to do something just because it's forbidden. And you want to take the joy out of disobedience, all of a sudden don't respond to it. Like, okay, let's come to my kids now. If I, if I want to actually sometimes to get their attention, I just kind of let them have their own way for a minute and let them see that it's... Not as satisfying. We still confront it later, but it's actually not that satisfying because it's actually the, it is my forbidding that sometimes drives them, like what we were talking about with Everett. Um, it's the joy <coughs> of doing forbidden things because they're forbidden. And get real honest. Like, think about, like, especially if you have a concept of sin and temptation. Think about what motivates you, especially those things that you, have, that you have wrestled against and you've surrendered over and over again, whether it, be, whether it be greed, materialism, lust, whatever it may be. Think about those things and try to drill down deep. Like, what is it that motivates? And often it's just kind of the excitement of the hidden place. It's just the thrill of getting away with something. This helps us understand the anatomy of sin. Paul's point is that we may have little desire for something until there is a command against it, but then our native perversity of our hearts is stirred up. Like, I don't know. It feels like I feel weird smiling while I feel like I'm beating us up, but it's good. Um, so we all have a, this tendency. I, I went through a spell in early college. I wish I could have said it was earlier in life, but it was early college where I, I kind of I loved stealing things. Okay, I did. I was, and I was a Christian, and but it, and it was like stupid stuff. Like I would, I, my goal was to steal salt and pepper shakers at every restaurant I went to, and I don't have any of those salt and pepper shakers anymore, by the way. But like it was just, or like I mean, like I stole, I stole signs, of course. I mean, you know, I just stole anything. I stole a coat rack 
from a restaurant in which, by the way, it's amazing what you can get away with if you do it with confidence. Like, because I literally just walked in and grabbed it and then walked out and like awkwardly crammed it into my Mustang, which was like a seven foot coat rack. So it wasn't inconspicuous. But I mean, like I did it just because it was fun. I did it because I wasn't supposed to. I did it because of the thrill of getting away with something. And I don't, I mean, again, the, the, I don't have any of that stuff anymore. It didn't matter to me. But, and so that's just like a really lighthearted, even though I was breaking the law and a hypocrite and all that stuff. Like, <coughs> but, but it's pretty, that's a pretty like just generic example. But we see the tendency in all of our hearts. And hopefully it stirs up that example for you. It brings the reality in all of us that we have a deeper motive for every sin. So while, there's a, while we see a surface motive, whether it be, you know, anger or greed or, or again, covetousness or, 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 or laziness or, or, or lust, again, we, we see these surfacey things that we often attribute to be the problem, <coughs> but there is always, always a deeper motive. Augustine pointed out that this deeper motive is that we all want to play God. That's, it all comes back to that. Any, this, this impulse in us is nothing less than we want to be God. We want to be, and we don't really, I mean, most of us wouldn't want to be other people's gods. We just want to be our own God. We want to be able to have say over what, what we think has authority over us and what we get to do and what holds water. That's what, and Augustine pointed out in his book, Confessions, Augustine, reflecting on a childhood experience similar to mine, he was a little younger, maybe a little more innocent, easier to excuse, uh, but he stole pears, and he, he, and he didn't even really want the pears themselves, he, you know, he took a couple of bites and threw most of them away, but in reflecting on that, he, he wrote this, this response as if it was a conversation between him and God, so this is him speaking to God, reflecting on this same kind of tendency he saw. <coughs> he says, in a, pervasive, in a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What then was it that I loved in that theft of mine? In what way, awkwardly and perversely, did I imitate my Lord? Did I find it pleasant to break your law unpunished, and so producing a darkened shadow of omnipotence? What a sight! A servant running away from his master and following a shadow. Can I enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden? And to think about God, our master. Remember who he is. He is, he is holy and sovereign and majestic. And he is our good, loving, merciful, heavenly father. And so that is the master we are running from, pursuing some, some glimmer of a shadow of a different sovereign, and that's our own. We are running away from the light of his glory to the shadow that our sin casts. Do you get the picture that he's, that he's painting here? We all have a deep desire to be in charge of our world. We want to be our own sovereigns. So every law... God lays down, pushes against that desire we have for our own absolute sovereignty. And that's where, like, when we seek, when we seek out 
our understanding of this life and who God is, our understanding can only get us so far because it is finite. And he is an infinite God. And his holiness is infinite. And his will is infinitely perfect. And yet our heart longs to take that. It reminds us, the law reminds us we are not God and we hate it. We don't like it. This is the root of the first sin in Adam and Eve. And again, we're speaking, Paul's most directly speaking to the person who has not come to the understanding of the work and saving work of, of, of in grace of Jesus and placing their faith in him. But, and so when I'm speaking in this very current we, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in that period of time. So look at Genesis 3, 5. For God knows, this is, this is the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, speaking of the apple, your eyes will be open from, from the tree. <coughs> Knowledge. He says, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will be like God knowing what God knows, knowing good and evil. That was the first temptation that led to sin entering the world. You will be like God. This is why every law stirs up our sin. Every law, as we said, pushes against our desire to be our own sovereign, our own God. So we're going to wade in the waters of verses 8 and 9 a little longer. Um, so we're going to kind of just be in here for a little bit because there's, there's more for us here. We're going to get to verses 10 through 13 in our conclusion, and that'll land the plane for us quickly after we kind of sit in 8 9 a little longer. So back into verse 9 again. Verse 9 says that there was a time that Paul was alive apart from the law. But then through the commandment, sin came alive and he died. Right? So again, that doesn't sound great for the law. So what does it mean? Paul, think about Paul. Who was Paul? If you don't know, Paul grew up Jewish. He grew up studying. He grew up. He, there was never a time that Paul was without the law as far as being exposed to it. He grew up well-groomed and well-studied, a well-groomed and well-studied Jewish boy. He grew up to be the Pharisee of Pharisees. Acts 26, 4 through 5 says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Philippians 3, the latter half of 4 through 6, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, <coughs> blameless. He knew, Paul, Paul knew the law. He knew it better than anyone. And he even knew that there was a standard, and to come up short of that standard was sin. He knew all that. So what is it saying? What Paul meant is that he thought his efforts were sufficient. He thought all of his work was attaining what, did he, what he wanted. What did he want? He wanted righteousness. He wanted good standing. He wanted, he wanted again, to, to, to be righteous, but it was his own. He thought he was achieving his redemption. He was in control. And we can apply this to all of us. Again, whether you grew up in the church or not, this could be any way in which we set out in our own power to be good, to, to be in good standing in this life. 
So this isn't just for the person that grew up exposed to Christianity. Like, we all have this definition of what it is to, to be good in this world, to do our part, to be good, to, 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 to do what it takes. So this is for all of us. The law, Paul is saying that a moment came when the law and the command came home to him. And he saw that his efforts would never, ever be enough. The law had come home and helped him see, see that the question is this, it's how do you overcome your sin against a holy God? And not how do you measure up because you never will. The law has shown him that his, his efforts would never get him there. And he was brought to the end of himself and he was convicted of sin. So we have to allow this work to be accomplished in us. I know when it comes to the things of faith, it's difficult. When it comes to the concepts of, of, of a holy, supernatural God, I know that it's just our, our minds strain to make sense of it. But if we, can, if we can see and acknowledge that there is a creator and it is God and he is good and he is sovereign and in his goodness and holiness, he created us for that purpose, to, to, to spread his image across the earth. And in our sin, we fractured that. We marred our image. We fractured our relationship. And he has been working to restore us. And his law that he gave was to bring us to the way in which he restores. And that's in Jesus. So we all have to allow the work of the law to accomplish this in us. And it's a call to humility. It's a call to sober thinking of who we are. It's also a call to surrender, and there's a freedom in that. I have to be careful not to get to Romans 8, but it's exciting. Um, <clears throat> but we have to allow this work to be accomplished in us, in us. So there's one more thing in verse 8. What was the sin that killed Paul that he referred to? It was, in, in, what, in what command exposed that sin? It was the command do not covet. Don't covet. Why do you think that it was that command that pierced Paul? I don't think he was being general. I think he was being specific. I don't, he was, I don't think he was referring to this just as one of the commands. I do think Paul was referring to this as the one that, that broke his heart in the most wonderful way, that, that brought the law home. Every other commandment of the Ten Commandments, every other, all nine of them, speaks directly to outward moral behavior. And this is how the Pharisees, including Paul, thought of sin in the commandments. They thought of it externally. Paul, and we, us as well, could say, I've not murdered anyone. I can't say I haven't stolen, but maybe you could. Um, I haven't worshipped an idol. I haven't crafted an image and bowed down to it. I mean, the list goes on. And Paul and many of the Pharisees could have done that because from day one, they were setting their lives towards that. And it was all about that. And so they could say that. And therefore, I'm doing fine. I'm doing what I need to do. I'm, I'm righteous before God. So you can read the commandments as superficial rules that are relatively easy to keep until you get to the last one. Do not covet. Not coveting has everything to do with the inward postures and attitude of your heart. 
Coveting never gets manifested if it hasn't started here. It is always of the heart. And to covet is to be discontent with what God has given you. And Paul just, it includes, to think about coveting, it includes self-pity, it includes grumbling, it includes murmuring. Tim Keller defines it this way, it's not simply wanting, it is an idolatrous longing for more beauty, wealth, approval, and popularity than what you have. It's not simply wanting, it is an idolatrous longing for more beauty, wealth, approval, and popularity than what you have. It's not wrong to want, but if you find yourself bitter and downcast when you don't get or achieve these things that you want, you ventured into the territory of this idolatrous coveting, elevating something beyond what God is giving, saying that there's something else I say that can satisfy me more than what God has provided. And whatever God provides is an expression of who he is. Paul had never considered the inward life longings and idolatrous desires as part of his keeping the commandments. He never considered that. He never considered that sin is essentially coveting against God and failing to love God enough to be content. So when Paul finally took keeping the law beyond just keeping rules... He saw his efforts fail, and thankfully, he hit the wall. It just, nowhere else to go. Romans 7, 10 through 12 says this, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, <coughs> excuse me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy. And righteous and good. So we see in verse 10 that Paul realized that these commandments given to show God's people how to live in his world, they actually brought death. Why? Because in verse 11 we see, because sin, using the commandment, deceived him. So we saw that it stirred up death. And then we saw back in verse 8, stirring up, it stirred up every kind of covetous desire. But through the gracious awakening of his own heart, Paul saw that he had, he had broken the law and that he could not do enough to overcome merely by keeping it outwardly. Back in verse 11, the flaw was not the law. The flaw was not in the law. This is what Paul's driving out. Quite the reverse in verse 12, the flaw was in Paul. When Paul's saying, when Paul says the law is holy, he is equating it with the very character of God, the very nature and completeness and purity of God. So the law was not the flaw was not in the law. The flaw is in Paul, the sinner. The flaw is in you and me because of our our pervasive sinful posture and, and, and preclusion. Externally, he may have been very good, but internally, he cannot be anything other than a sinner in need for a savior. So Paul summarizes once again, we already alluded to this verse, but just to make sure that we don't miss his point in verse 13, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
this feels like a heavier message, but I, I pray that we're able to see to see it as, as God's glorious truth that, that brings us to being grateful because we see it as an invitation. You know, um, thinking about the way we engage these things, I, I just, I, I know, I mean, if you grew up in the church, there's a chance you've been wrecked with guilt over your sin. You've been wrecked with guilt your whole life. I was just watching a documentary on, on Ted Haggard, who has just had a lifelong struggle with a particular sin, and, and he just said all he ever felt was worthless, and all he ever felt was, was like he, just, he, was, he was horrible and wretched. And, I, and I'll tell you, like again, in terms of sin, we are, but, but yet when we see this, we see that we, we need to own our sin, and that that is, our, that is our state, but yet we also need to see the heart of God expressed. That a holy God, a holy God created a way for us to be redeemed and restored and to not be identified by sin. And even though if we are in that present state of sinfulness, God looks at us with truth, but also with grace and compassion. And he initiated in his love he reached out, he incarnated, he entered into our mess, into our world to snatch us out. And so, yes, like own our sin, own your sin, but yet the point is not that you would just go and cower and hide, but that you would find the freedom to come stand before a holy God because of his grace and let your conscience be liberated because of Jesus. So if you grew up in the church and you're wrecked and you're just constantly in guilt, again, Romans 8, two weeks from now, it's really exciting. Um, I'll give you a little hint. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> you can do it too, Caleb. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's I, I, like, it's this weird tension of like, man, be really sober and like serious and get in there and acknowledge your sin but yet see the heart of the Father expressed to you. Paul went from life to death when he encountered the true nature of his sin. He was oblivious and living large, and then he was wrecked, and he just entered into death because it just all came crashing down when he confronted the law. But he also entered back into life again. If you grew up outside this teaching, you still have a defined way of which you think you have good standing. And if God is a holy God, creator of all things, giver of life and love and truth, this abides and rules over you as well. So I invite you to the freedom of going from the life you think you have to death so that you may find life again in Christ. And I know that there are some that have been wounded by the church because they have forgotten the point of the law was, was so that we would find the death in ourselves and the life in Christ. They've just worried about the death. We just want you to, to, to feel the death and the sting. And they forget about the grace and the love. The greatest commandment God gives us to love God. The next is to love people. And all the commandments come from that. And so he does all that in that posture of love and compassion. And the church has missed that far too often. And I'll say just as a sole, humble representative as much as I can, if that's happened to you, I'm sorry. But I also say, hear the beauty of what God desires. 
and his invitation. If you've been wounded, bring your wounding to Jesus and see that his will is not for you to be disgraced, but to be redeemed. I'm going to pray. God, I thank you for that truth. I, I, uh, I can imagine that hearts and minds are turning and spinning. I pray that uh, you would take your word and just do the work that is necessary in our hearts and minds to bring us to this place of, of life to death and to life again in Christ. Let us take our sins seriously. Let us see, Lord, the nature of sin. Lord, if we have called on Jesus as Savior and we are no longer under the sentence of guilty in our sin, but we are redeemed and righteous because of the blood and righteousness of Christ, I pray, I pray that we would not enter back in to living as though we are guilty. I pray for those who have not called on Christ yet. I just pray for freedom of surrender and for them to hear the invitation of love and grace to come and to, to surrender to the work that, they could not, that we could not do on our own, but that you did in Christ. And I pray for those who have been wounded. I pray for the salve of grace and truth to come and heal. And I pray that, that we would all bring that to you, that we would share it with one another and celebrate your faithfulness and love. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your law. Lord, we know that it, it calls us to the glorious truth of needing a Savior and seeing in full color the expression of your love in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.